All righty. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys? Excellent. Well, grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to be studying the second half of the chapter this morning, verses 10 through 20. And we'll begin by just reading the story together. Here's what it says. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning that we can come before you, God. We can be in your presence and you pay attention to us. God, you, you listen to us. You speak to us. Lord, you're close to us. God, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us so that we can worship you. God, thank you that you love us. And God, we just pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word. God, these are events that took place in a different part of the world a very long time ago. People spoke different language. They had a different culture. God, we want to understand what it is you have for us in this text this morning. So please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those stories that if you're not a Christian and you're maybe a little bit skeptical of the Bible, you read this and think, aha, I knew it. (laughs) The Bible cannot be trusted. The Bible is a book full of patriarchy and misogyny and slavery and spousal abuse and violence and corruption and on and on, and they slap religion on top of it just to justify all of that nonsense. And I can understand how that might be your immediate reaction to this story. But when I read this story, and there are many others like it throughout the pages of Scripture, believe it or not, it actually has the opposite effect. This story, this particular story about Abram and Sarai gives me so much confidence that the Bible is true. So much confidence that these things actually happened and that this actually is the word of God. You say, well, why is that? Seems counterintuitive. Well, it's because if someone were inventing Christianity or inventing Judaism, out of thin air, they would never include this story. You would never write it this way. Consider just for a moment who Abram is, or Abraham later is what his name is going to be changed to. Who is 
Abraham. Abraham is the father of Judaism. And in many ways, he is the father then of Christianity. He is the patriarch of patriarchs. He literally is the father of Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. He is a hero of the faith. We've just been introduced to him, the beginning of chapter 12. He's living in the land of Ur in Mesopotamia. He's a pagan living in a big city, worshiping the god Nana, who is a moon god. God speaks to him. And God says, Abram, you need to go. He says, leave. Leave your people. Leave your culture. Leave your land. Leave your family. And travel 800 miles through the desert to the land that I will show you. And he doesn't say where he's going, by the way. He says, I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. <laughs> and God says, I'll bless you. And Abram believes God. And he goes. I mean, it's remarkable. This is why Romans 4 says he is the father of all who have faith. He believes God. He obeys God. He goes. And in the first nine verses of Genesis, Abram is on a roll. I mean, he's just dominating. (laughs) Abram, he goes to Canaan in obedience to God and faith. And then he travels throughout the land and he's setting up monuments all over the land of Canaan, which probably would have been fairly dangerous to do. This is a pagan nation, and he's declaring a different God as a foreigner in their land. And he doesn't care about the danger. He's just dominating. He's just worshiping God. He's obeying God. And all of that makes sense if you're going to make up a religion out of thin air. But it only lasts for nine verses. Nine verses. And then you come to this story, and what happens? Here's a quick summary, quick synopsis of what happens in the last half of chapter 12. First, the father of faith is utterly faithless. There's no faith happening. The end of chapter 12, Abraham is scared. He acts cowardly. He acts selfishly and he fails miserably, which means this story is an embarrassment. (laughs) I mean, in many ways, it's an embarrassment to Christianity. It's an embarrassment to Judaism. If Abram is supposed to be the hero if Abram is supposed to be the example that we are to look to. But he's not. He's not. And here's our main point this morning. The blessing promised to Abram, the beginning of chapter 12, it depends on God's call, not Abram's conduct. This is going to be a major theme throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. The blessing promised to Abram is about what God is doing, not about what Abram is doing. God is the hero of the story, not Abram or any other person. God is our only hope. God is the source of good. God is the example for us to look to and follow. Now with that sort of set up, there's a temptation that you're going to have as we study through this passage. And it's a temptation that I feel as well. And the temptation as we read this story is to stand over Abram in judgment and contempt and just think, what a joke of a man. (laughs) I mean, what a coward, what a fool, what a terrible husband. I I feel that. Like, I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I think, what is he doing? I mean, what is he thinking? But if you read the story that way, you're going to miss the point. You will miss it. When we read the story, I think we are to identify with Abram. That's what we're supposed to do. We are to put ourselves, whether you're a man or a woman, husband or a wife, married, unmarried, young or old, you are to put yourself 
in Abram's shoes. And you might be thinking, well, I've never done anything like this. I mean, this is horrible what Abram does. And I think to myself, really though? (laughs) You've never done anything like this? Have you ever made a bad decision that was based in fear and not faith that you later regretted? I have. Have you ever acted incredibly selfishly? So selfishly that you were kind of blind to how it was impacting other people and then later realized, wow, that like really hurt someone. I have. And so we should see ourselves in Abram. And if you will see yourself in Abram, you will get the point. God is faithful even when we are not. God's promises will come true even when we get in the way and threaten to screw them up. That's the big idea. But let's look more closely at this, kind of verse by verse. We'll walk through it together. It comes in two parts. First, Abram's fear, and then God's faithfulness. Abram's fear, verse 10, says there's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Now, the first natural question as you are getting into this story, and especially as you get to the end and you're reflecting back on it, you're thinking, was it good or bad that Abram went to Egypt? Was this disobedience to God, or was it okay that he went to Egypt? And Genesis doesn't tell us. Gives us no commentary. And you're going to notice this quite a bit. The author of Genesis, Moses, especially in the story of Abraham and his descendants as it unfolds, often he just presents the facts of the story. This is what happened. This is how it went down. And then he leaves it up to you as the reader to decide whether or not it was good or bad, whether or not it was done in faith or not, we're left to draw our own conclusions in many cases. So how are we to view this decision to go down to Egypt? Well, there are some clues in the progression of the story. So here's the progression. If you go back to last week, Genesis 12, verse 1. God shows up in Ur to Abram, and he says, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God speaks to Abram. Then we get to verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Then they get to Canaan, 800 miles through the desert. They get there. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then they go to Bethel, which is still in Canaan. They're kind of doing a tour, surveying the land, checking out all the different cities and places. Verse 8, Abram built an altar to the Lord there. And he called on the name of the Lord. So what do you notice about Abram's travels to and through the promised land? God is always there. God is woven throughout the entire sequence. God is speaking to Abram or Abram is speaking to God. God says, go, Abram goes. Abram gets there. God says, this is it. Here we are. Abram builds an altar. He worships him. And then he worships God as he continues to go throughout the land. And then we get to verse 10. Very abruptly, there's a shift in the story. It says there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Now what's missing in verse 10? Or rather, who's missing in verse 10? No mention of God. No mention of God instructing Abram. No mention of Abram crying out to God. And this is totally unexpected what happens here because in the sequence, in the story, Abram has just been told by God to go to Canaan. He just has gotten there, and then he leaves. And, and every part of God's command, this is, well, you think, well, there's a famine. He had to do something. 
But every part of God's command to Abram has already been difficult. All of it. None of this was easy. The departure wouldn't have been easy. Saying goodbye to all his family, his culture, his friends, his community, whatever his job was, it's all gone. The journey wouldn't have been easy, 800 miles through the desert. It's not like they had camelbacks and, you know, and Nalgene bottles and, and water filters back then. The encounters with the pagan Canaanites, all of that, it would have been dangerous, it would have been painful, and it would have been difficult. And so I don't think we should view the famine as an excuse. All of it's been difficult, all of it's been painful, all of it's been scary. And so I think it's clear that Abram is not being motivated by faith at this point. He's being motivated by fear. And he looks at his circumstances and he says, "Uh uh-oh, God didn't say anything about this. This has all been hard. God's been good. God's been faithful. But he didn't say anything about this famine. And so he takes matters into his own hands. One commentator I read on this, he said, Abram's going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He did not deny God. He simply forgot him. I think that's so insightful. This is so often how fear works in the life of a Christian. I've experienced it. You've probably experienced it, whether you realize it or not. Often we don't even, we don't even know when this is happening because it is instinctual. It's reflective. It's intuitive. And so what happens is you're following the Lord, you've made decisions in faith, you've seen God come through, and then something in your circumstances, something in your relationships, something happens that rattles you. You say, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. I don't like that. <laughs> that is painful. That's difficult. That's scary. And it introduces discomfort. And for most people when that happens, your response is not, God, how dare you let this happen to me? I hate you. I'm done. That's not how people respond. Not if you're a Christian. Now, some people will respond that way. But most often, that's not how people respond. What happens is that fear, that discomfort, it creates haste. It creates a sense of urgency in your soul. And that haste causes you to simply leave God out of your thinking. You just don't factor in God's word. You don't factor in God's promises. You don't get counsel from other people who are Christians. And when that happens, you will most often simply run away from the difficulty. That's what you do. I don't like this pain. I'm leaving. (laughs) I don't like this difficult relationship. I'm done with it. I don't like these circumstances. Let me do whatever I can to get out of this situation. And it's motivated purely by fear. It's not like utter rebellion to God. You just leave him out of your thinking. And I think that's exactly what happens here. But just because it's not intentionally sinful does not mean it's without consequences, as we're going to see. There are very serious consequences to Abram's faithless, fear-filled thinking. They go to Egypt, and the plan would have been to stay there for several months. The original language, it's the word sojourn. So the idea is you're going to be kind of like a resident alien. You're going to live there for several months, maybe even up to a year or more. Famine in Canaan was caused by lack of rain, so people would move down to Egypt near the Nile because there's always water there. Even if it didn't rain, you had the river, which means there's food, there's water. And so it actually actually was very common for people from Canaan to move down into the region of Egypt during times of severe famine, and they would stay there for several months, maybe a year, maybe two years. It just depends on what the weather did in many ways. 
And so this is the idea. And if there's any doubt that Abram is motivated by fear in verse 10, that doubt is immediately cleared up by what happens next. Verse 11, when he's about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. And I want to thread the needle here a little bit. What I don't want to do is absolve Abram, because this is a horrible, foolish, cowardly thing that he does. But... I also, from most of the commentaries that I've read, I've studied this passage, I don't think Abram anticipated what was going to happen. I don't think Abram thought that Pharaoh was going to come snatch his wife up. I think more likely what's going on. Now, he, he might have, and that would make Abram a complete monster, and maybe he was, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Abram understood the culture that he lived in, and normally in this culture, if you were going to take someone as your wife, there would be a process of negotiating with that young woman's father. And, and that could take, you see this later in the book of Genesis. Think about with Laban. Sometimes it would take years, but it would take, it would take several months, sometimes a year, sometimes even more. This process of negotiating, working out with the father, the terms of the marriage. And in this culture, if the father was dead, if the father wasn't around anymore, if the father had abandoned his family for some reason, then that responsibility fell to the eldest brother. And Abram knew this, and Sarai knew this. And so I think what's going on here is, is Abram is not anticipating that he's actually going to give his wife away to someone. He's just trying to buy them time. Hey, we're going to be here six months. Let's say you're my sister. You're very beautiful. Probably people are going to you know, want to negotiate to marry you, but we'll just, it is, we're just going to slow play it, buy some time. Okay, sounds good. I think that's what's going on. They want to be safe. They want to be in a position of favor as they sojourn in the land of Egypt. And from that perspective, you could see how in Abram's mind, this may have even been the best way to protect his wife. Because he's looking at the situation. He says, okay, I know two things. Number one, Sarai is a 10. I mean, she is drop dead gorgeous. She is extraordinarily good looking. And so we're going to go into the land and uh, that's going to create tr trouble because the second thing he knows is that this group of people, uh, they are ruthless. They are godless. And they will not hesitate to just kill Abram so they can take his wife and marry her. And that's going to be a horrible outcome for both of them, but that might even be worse for Sarai. Can you imagine the trauma of your husband is murdered and then you're just stolen and made some foreigner's wife? That'd be a horrible situation. And so I think in Abram, Abram's mind, he thinks this is probably the best way to even protect my wife. So it does make sense from that perspective, but that doesn't absolve him. He is still motivated by fear and not by faith. He still relies on deception and not the principles of God's word and God's promises. And he overlooks one possible outcome, which is in verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful which is exactly what he anticipated would happen, but he doesn't anticipate what happens next. Pharaoh's officials also saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Whoops. <laughs> That's not a part of the plan. Abram, I don't think, anticipated that. Every other man in Egypt, they would have had to negotiate with the eldest brother, quote-unquote, who was Abram, to take Sarai as their wife, except for one. 
which is Pharaoh, the king. He negotiates with no one. He takes what he wants. And so this is what he does. He hears about this extraordinarily beautiful foreigner, and he says, oh, take her into my harem of wives. Sounds pretty good. And this would have been horrible. I mean, this is a horrible situation. This would have been utterly traumatizing for Sarai. Now, one important question arises here, and and it would have been horrible. It would have been traumatizing for Sarai either way. But one question is, should we assume that Sarai was subjected to a sexual relationship with Pharaoh? That's a big question. And there's no way to know for sure because the text does not tell us, but I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no, and there's two reasons why. First is because the book of Genesis is not at all shy about being very straightforward when there's an inappropriate sexual relationship. It tells us over and over. We're going to see this later with Abraham and Hagar. It just says he slept with her. It just says it. It says it with uh, Jacob, and it says it with Lot's daughters, and it says it with Judah and Tamar. And so we get all of these different, very explicit accounts, very straightforward when there is inappropriate sexual contact. And it doesn't say anything about it here. The other reason why I think the answer is no is that more than likely this would have been a scenario like in the book of Esther. You remember in the book of Esther, Esther, young, single Jewish woman, she's living as a foreigner in exile in the land of Persia. And she's like Sarai, extraordinarily beautiful. And the emperor, the king of Persia, he takes Esther to be his wife, which means she's one of probably dozens, maybe hundreds of women in his harem. And in, in the story of Esther, she is, she is in the harem, in the household of the king of Persia for a year before she ever is even introduced to him. And I think this probably would have been a similar scenario. So, so when we hear that Pharaoh takes her into his household, I don't think we're to, to view it as she's just in his bedroom, night one. That's not how this would have worked. Now, it's still horrific. It's still utterly terrifying and traumatizing for Sarai, but more than likely the marriage to Pharaoh is not consummated. Also, I think this is probably why Abram tries this again later in chapter 20, which is ridiculous. Meanwhile, verse 16, he treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. In other words, this is a complete mess. So Pharaoh, he totally buys the lie, takes Sarah as his wife, and uh, he doesn't need to ask for permission. There's no negotiation, but Pharaoh, he, he wants to honor. He wants to show his gratitude to older brother Abram. And so he gives him, he loads him up with incredible wealth. And Abram is totally locked in at this point to this lie. There's no escaping this situation. So he doesn't trust God in his fear, and it gets him, more importantly, his wife in a really, really bad situation. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. The main point of the story, like we already talked about, is God's faithfulness. And up to this point, verses 10 through 16, God is utterly absent. No mention of God. First nine verses, it's just all about God. God speaking to Abraham, Abraham speaking to God. Then God just disappears for six verses. And in verse 17, it says this, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. There's no mention of Abram crying out to God. God just shows up. He intervenes. And at this point, I think it's important to look at the results of of what has happened so far, especially in relation to the promise of God. 
So God promised Abram a land. Abram leaves the land, just flees, runs away. God promised Abram offspring through Sarai. Abram loses his wife. She gone. Okay. God promised to bless the nations through Abram. You remember that part of the promise? Well, the Egyptians are now cursed by plagues because of Abram. And so Abram's fear, his lack of faith, it actually is a direct threat to all of the outcomes that God promised him. I mean, he's just made a complete mess of the situation. God steps in, verse 18. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Now, we don't know exactly how Pharaoh finds out that Sarai is not Abram's sister, but his wife. It could have been that she was the only one in the whole household who's not struck by these plagues. Could have been that she just broke down and told him, but he finds out. Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Abram is not the hero in the story. His decisions are a threat to everything God is trying to do. And so the story ends with God intervening, saving the day. And one thing that you may miss if you just read through this quickly is that this little story, these 10 verses, the end of Genesis chapter 12, they are meant to serve as a parallel and a reminder of something that happened earlier in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, the story in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And if you read this in the Hebrew, which I did not, just to be clear, (laughs) I don't read Hebrew, uh, but just reading some of the commentaries, when you, when you look at the language, the verbiage in the Hebrew, this just jumps off the page, that it's a parallel story. We don't have time to go through all of that, but just look quickly at some of the high-level parallels. Garden of Eden and this story of Egypt. Both stories center around temptation caused by food. Both stories hinge on deception, the deception of the serpent in the garden and the deception of Abram in Egypt. Both stories result in the formula, or both deceptions result in the formula they saw and they took. The woman saw that the fruit was good. She took it and ate it. Pharaoh saw that Sarah was beautiful and he took her as his wife. Both stories highlight the poor leadership of the husband. In both stories, the husband is called to account and rebuked in Eden by God. And ironically, in Egypt, Abram, God's man, is rebuked by godless pagan Pharaoh. And what you see is actually that Pharaoh gives Abram the same instructions that God did. He says, go, which is the same thing God said in verse one, get out of here, take your wife and go. In both stories, the husband blames his wife. (laughs) Adam says, well, it's this woman you gave to me. You know, she's the one who gave me the fruit. Abram says, well, my wife, you know, she's too beautiful. What choice do I have? They're gonna kill me otherwise. Both stories then end and result in expulsion from the Garden of Eden and from Egypt. And in many ways, they are the same story. We are meant to see them as parallel accounts, similar features, similar tension, similar mistakes, similar results, with one very important difference. There's a really key difference in the two accounts, Kevin DeYoung, his commentary on Genesis, he says this, in Genesis 3, they are kicked out of Eden and they leave with cursing. Here, they are kicked out of Egypt and they leave with blessing. 
They deserve cursing, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But here, the promise of God is so operative that when they deserve the same cursing that man got in Genesis 3, instead, they get what they don't deserve. They get more blessing. It's remarkable. You say, why is God so kind to them? Why why do they leave with more than what they showed up with? God blesses them. God preserves them. God protects them. God covers for all of their mistakes and all of their fear and all of their sinfulness, and he delivers them back to the promised land. And this comes back to our main point. At the beginning, the blessing promised to Abram depends on God's call, not Abram's conduct. That's the idea. That is the point of the story. God's promises always come true. God's plans are not going to be screwed up by your unfaithfulness or mine or anyone's. The blessing promised to Abram then is about God. It's about what he's going to do. And at this point, you think, okay, that's interesting. That's helpful. I understand this story a little bit better. But what does it have to do with me? How does this apply to us in the year 2023 in a different culture, different setting, different religion? What do we do with this? Well, we are not Abram, obviously. We don't have the exact promises that God gave to Abram. We're not living in Canaan 3,500 years ago. We're not facing a famine, literally. So what are we to do with this? Well, the blessing, we already talked about this a little bit, Genesis 3. We're going to talk about a lot more as we go through the rest of the story of Genesis. The blessing promised Abram ultimately was about Jesus. And there's a million different ways you can get there. There's a million different permutations of this and ways to explain this. Galatians 3 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this. Now the promises, he's talking about the promises in Genesis 12. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed or offspring. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. This is a direct quote of Genesis 12, 7 which we just read. So he says the offspring, in the original language, it's not plural. It's singular. One. The, the, The promise is to your offspring, singular. And Paul says that's Jesus. That's Jesus. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Judah. It's not David. It's all about Jesus. And all the tension in the story in the book of Genesis, from the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, through Genesis chapter 12, all of it is centered on the brokenness caused by sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everything is just a mess. The whole story has just been dominated by sin and corruption and the fall of humanity. You think of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, that was bad enough. But then you get to chapter 4 and you see hatred and murder by Cain. You see the pride and the violence of Lamech. You see sexual immorality and idolatry by everyone. Genesis 6, the drunkenness of Noah, the disrespect of Ham, the pride of the Tower of Babel, the lust of Pharaoh in Genesis 12, the fearful deception of Abraham. Sin is what dominates the story. And the whole time you're reading it, you're thinking, what is the solution to this? And this is where it connects with us, because sin dominating the story is still the human experience. You look around the world today, and it's the same thing. 
Everywhere you look, you just see sin dominating. And if you're honest, if you look at yourself, if you look at your own thoughts, if you look at your own conduct and your own experience, if you're honest, this is your situation. Not that you don't ever do anything good. You want to do good, and sometimes you do, but you also do a lot of bad things. You lie, just like Abram. You're selfish, just like he was. You've hated people like Cain and Lamech, at least at times. You've lusted like the adulterers in Genesis 6, Pharaoh, Genesis 12. You've been proud like the people at Babel. Everyone has done these things. I've done these things. And what we see then in the book of Genesis so far, and we're going to see it more, but God, he stands in opposition to our sin. He hates sin. He's righteous. He's holy. He's just. He has to punish it. You see this in the flood. This is why God brings the judgment of the flood is that he has to severely punish sin. God hates sin. And the New Testament tells us that even though God's not going to flood the earth again, his wrath is still pointed at each one of us because of sin. He's holy. We are accountable to him. So what is the solution? We haven't found it yet in the book of Genesis. You think, well, maybe it's Abram. God shows up. He gives these incredible promises to Abram. It seems like we're narrowing in on a solution. That's where all the tension is. But the solution, by the time we get to the second half of chapter 12, it's obviously not Abram. He's not it. It's not Sarai. It's not their son, Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not, you know, maybe it's David. He's a man after God's own heart. He slayed Goliath. Yeah, but he's also a murderer and an adulterer. It's not David. He's not not the solution. They're all sinners, just like us. The solution is Jesus. The blessing God promised Abraham was about sending a descendant through his lineage, which was Jesus. Jesus is the only singular human hero in the Bible. He's it. And the reason Jesus could be the hero is because Jesus was and is God himself. God had to intervene. God had to enter into human history. And Jesus was God, clothed in human flesh, fully God, fully man. And so he was able to do what Abram couldn't do, and what David couldn't do, and what Isaac couldn't do, and what no person could ever do, and what you can't do. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, perfect obedience, perfect fulfillment of all the commands of God, not just in his behavior, but in his thinking, in his attitudes. He was a perfect man. And then Jesus, after living a life not only of perfection, but of incredible love and service and self-sacrifice, healing thousands, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, teaching the masses with authority and love and care, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was, by and large, shown scorn and contempt and hatred by the nation of Israel and even the Gentiles and they hung him on a cross as a criminal and this was the plan Jesus came to go to the cross and he hung there as your substitute he hung there to fulfill for you what you could not do for yourself and to take the penalty that you have earned yourself because of your sin and the wrath of God the father was poured out on his son on the cross so that you could be set free so that you could be given Jesus' righteousness. He takes your guilt, gives you his righteousness. So that any person who would trust in him, 
who would have faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, you'd be saved. Your sin will be forgiven. That is the good news. And then Jesus, he, he conquered sin and death once for all when he rose from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel. The good news, the gospel, is that salvation from sin is possible. It's possible. Both God's punishment from sin and from the dominating effect sin has on your life. You can be saved from that. You can be set free from living a sinful life. But what we see in Genesis 12 is that salvation from sin is the result of God's faithfulness, not yours. That's the idea. It is, it is about what God has done, not what you do. Just like God intervened for Abraham in Egypt, Jesus intervened for you on the cross. That's the idea. Salvation from sin is the result of God's faithfulness, not yours. And even though this story is really old and a little bit archaic, and it, it, there's, there's cultural, major cultural differences, if you can understand that, if you can embrace that truth, it will set you free in really powerful ways. Just to close, four quick applications. Number one, take courage in the face of fear. Take courage in the face of fear. The Christian life is, by definition, uncomfortable. It just is. I, I know many of you right now, in your life right now, in following Christ, there is much pain. There's much difficulty and it's scary because you don't know how it's going to end. In some of these relationships, some of these situations, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I, th I think about some of you guys who, who sold your homes, you, you uprooted your family, and you moved out here six years ago to help plant this location of Walnut Creek. And when we did that, we, it's like, I don't know how this is going to go. And in some ways, still, I'm like, I still don't know how it's going to go, you know? There's, some, there's been some really good things that have happened. Some good momentum, God is working, but there's been a lot of pain. And there's probably going to be more. And so it's scary. But if Jesus is alive, if the tomb is empty, if God really became a man and died in your place to save you, then that means you can trust him. You can trust him. You can wait for him. You can learn to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I was just reading the Psalms in my time with the Lord this week. Psalm 121. Verse 5 says, the Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. That means his protection is constant. It's always there. The Lord will protect you from all harm. It's complete. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and your going. It's practical. It's day to day, both now and forever. God's protection is for this life and for eternity. That is an amazing promise. God will protect you. Now that doesn't mean there's never going to be anything difficult. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pain. There's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be scary situations. But you, if you will factor God in in faith, He will make good on His promises. He will protect you. He will preserve you. He will be with you. And He's going to bless you. Remember an older much more seasoned pastor once shared this advice with me. He said, don't ever move towards a situation or a decision that is unclear if you're currently uncomfortable. He said, don't do that. 
If you're currently in a painful situation that is not going to resolve anytime soon, don't move towards a decision or another situation that is unclear. You need to wait. You need to wait either until you're no longer in a painful situation, you're no longer so uncomfortable, you're in more of a position of strength, or you wait until God's call to that other situation becomes really, really clear. Otherwise, there's a very good chance that your motivation is going to be fear. And we're tricky. (laughs) People are complicated. We are good at justifying our decisions. And I think that's good advice. So take take courage in the face of fear. Number two, take hope in the face of failure. Take hope in the face of failure. So even if you're a Christian, just like Abram, Abram was a, he was a man of faith. I believe Abram, he, he's, he is, his sins are cleansed retroactively at this point. That's why Romans 4 says he's the father of all who have faith. Paul says in Romans 4 that, that, uh, that Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So Abram's sins are taken care of and he still fails. And if you're a Christian, your sins are taken care of. You can't out the grace of God. The blood of Jesus, it atones sins, past, present, and future. But you're still going to fail at times. And sometimes, like Abram in chapter 12, those failures are going to be really bad. Hopefully not. It's not like we're just, we just need to resign to, I'm going to fail in huge ways that ruin the rest of my life. We don't need to resign to that. We shouldn't do that. But you might. I pray you won't. And you might fail in ways that have lifelong consequences on this side of eternity. But what do you do when that happens? Well, you remember, you can't screw his plan up. (laughs) No matter, even if you wanted to, you can't screw up God's plan or his promises. Salvation from sin is the result of his faithfulness, not yours. If that wasn't true, then when you screw up, you'd have no option but to just quit. Just quit, pack it in. (laughs) But it's not the result of your faithfulness. It's the result of God's faithfulness. That is true, which means you can get up, you can keep moving. You can keep going. God's word, it does give us directions. When you fail, there's directions for confession and repentance and seeking forgiveness from others, and you need to obey all those principles, but you can keep going. There's always hope. I think about what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. This is Paul who has met Jesus face to face. He's, he's done miracles on par with the Lord Jesus and the other apostles. He's the most prolific church planner in world history. The Apostle Paul, he says, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just one step at a time. I just keep trying to take hold of it. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. You can keep going. You can keep moving by God's grace. So take hope in the face of failure. Number three, husbands, serve and protect your wives by walking humbly in faith. So you husbands, some of you, you know, you might be working really hard at your job. You might have a great attitude around the house. You might even be serving in the church and participating regularly in fellowship. But if you are not personally, privately connecting with God in his word and through prayer, if you're not crying out to him regularly, habitually, 
in humility and in faith, eventually your wife is going to suffer. It's just a fact. Your wife will suffer and you need to feel the weight of that responsibility. And if you don't factor God into decisions you're making leading your family, your wife is going to suffer and your kids are going to suffer. And again, there's grace, there's hope in failure, but that doesn't mean that you should plan to fail. (laughs) It doesn't mean you should be lazy. It doesn't mean you should just say, oh, well, God's got it. It doesn't matter what I do at all. You should be desperate to walk in faith out of love for Christ and love for your family. Fourth application. Wives, be a good helper and follower to your husband by not tolerating faithlessness. If you are a Christian wife, then you need to take seriously the command to submit to and respect your husband, but it's not loving, it's not respectful, and it's not helpful to tolerate his pride or his laziness or his lack of faith. That's not helpful. And so if you have a husband that is clearly operating in those ways over time, you can and you should tell him, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to live this way. We're not, we're not going to lead our kids this way if you have them. You answer to God before you answer to your husband. Now, we don't know if Sarai protested this plan in Genesis 12 or not. Maybe she did. But if you are a Christian wife, you're not just an innocent victim if your husband is not walking in faith. You don't, you don't just resign to like, oh, well, you know, whatever. He's the leader of the family, and so I don't have to do anything. You call him to repentance. You correct him in love, respectfully, gently, just like you would anyone else. You get the church involved if necessary, but that is probably the best way you could love him in the long run. And so those are a couple lessons that we can learn. What we want to do over time, husbands, wives, kids, young, old, single, whoever you are, wherever you are in life, we want to walk in faith, not be motivated by fear. And this is the amazing thing. Because, because of Christ, because of what he's done, we can consistently and, and, and more increasingly walk by faith, not by sight. Be motivated by faith and courage and not by fear. So that's what we want to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that um, we're not the heroes of the story. And uh, Abram's not the hero of the story. It's not David, it's not Elijah, it's not Jeremiah, it's not the prophets, it's not Moses. Father, you're the hero. You're the savior. You're the king. And God, it is amazing that you would humble yourself and intervene on our behalf at such a great cost. You become a man, you'd go to the cross, you'd be treated with contempt and you'd be murdered and you'd suffer and die for us. It's just remarkable. So God, I thank you that there is freedom. God, that we don't have to, we don't have to just load up ourselves with all of the responsibility to save ourselves. It's hopeless. You've set us free from that, Lord. I pray you'd help us to walk in faith. God, I pray that the fact that we don't have to do anything to be set from, free from sin would actually motivate us properly to walk in faith and to walk in obedience even when it's scary. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue to worship the Lord here through communion. And communion is an opportunity for us to just really focus on and remember 
what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so the elements, they represent the the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood. And in taking communion, what we do is we remember what Jesus did for us. We anticipate his second coming. Communion is for Christians only. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, we're so glad you're here. But this part of the service is not for you. Uh, What we would encourage you to do is instead of partaking in the symbols, the elements, partake in the substance. And just consider your heart before Jesus. Consider receiving the actual sacrifice of his body and blood to make atonement for you personally. And if you don't know what that means or exactly how to do that, please grab me or maybe grab whoever brought you to church, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. So you can consume the elements on your own at your seat. Uh, Just pray, remember the gospel, and then in a minute here, the band will come back up and we'll close with one more song.